Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 13. Last week, I covered a book that's not part of the Bible, but was mentioned in the Book of Numbers, the Book of the Wars of the Lord. I also discussed Aaron's rod, the one that budded, along with the brazen serpent that Moses was instructed by God to make. In this episode, I'm working through a few of the better-known places in Numbers, along with several lesser-known ones. And by lesser-known, they're mostly places we know little to nothing about. So, like you know by now, I'll cover them very quickly. Hence why the title of the episode has so many names. And with that, let's get started. One place that has frequently come up is Eden. I covered that a couple of years ago, in chapter 2, episodes 64 and 65. So, no redundancy today. The first place I'm covering this week is Dabon, found in several places in Numbers. Modernly, it's called Dibon, and is east of the Dead Sea and south of Amman, Jordan. Though, through most of its history, the place was little more than a waypoint for nomads. And the modern town wasn't settled until the 20th century. Ancient ruins and artifacts have been found that date the first occupation as early as about the 3rd millennium BC, so well before the Israelites would have arrived. The village was on the King's Highway, so it benefited from the trade that traveled that route. During this period, it may have been the same as a village named TBN, found on various Egyptian inscriptions dating to the reigns of Thutmose III, Amenhotep III, and Ramses II. All of these ruled during the New Kingdom, with Ramses II, the Great, ruling the latest. In the 13th century BC, he would lead several military campaigns into Canaan, which was at various points considered part of his kingdom. Therefore, the identification of the inscriptions may be plausible, and some think Ramses was the pharaoh in the Exodus narrative. Fast forward in the Pentateuch, and the post-Exodus wandering Israelites stopped there. In some translations, it's rendered as Debon Gad, since it would later be occupied by the tribe of Gad. As for the word Debon, in ancient Hebrew, it's thought to mean wasting or pining, not very complimentary. Then there's the triangulation of the biblical text in ancient outside history. First, know that the Masha Stele was discovered in Debon. I previously touched on this stone tablet before. Among other things, it tells of how a Moabite king from the 9th century BC expelled the Israelites from the town and established the city as an important settlement in the kingdom of Moab. This is thought to correspond with 2 Kings chapter 3, where Jehoram of Israel allies with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, along with an unnamed king of Edom, which was located to the south of Judah. They all formed this alliance in order to defeat the rebelling vassal Mesha. It's believed this Mesha was a Moabite king. Things were going their way until Mesha, in despair, sacrificed to his deity Chemosh, either his eldest son or the eldest son of the king of Edom. After this human sacrifice, the tide turned, 
Emesha was able to defeat the Alliance. Later, the city underwent a construction boom with the tail being enlarged via retaining walls. Towers were built along with a city wall. This is thought to have happened between the 9th and 8th centuries BC, so likely after the Mesha stele was inscribed. There was also a large necropolis built at the same time. All of these would later be abandoned for unclear reasons. About 700 years later, in the 1st century BC, the city was re-established as part of the Nabataean Empire, with many unearthed artifacts and structures from that time reflecting their influence. The Romans would take over in 106 AD, and the city shrunk, but was not completely abandoned. The Romans would maintain a nearby road, thought to be their equivalent of the ancient king's highway. Later in the Roman and Byzantine period, it's thought that the town became Christianized as two churches had been uncovered. Like most cities in the region, Diban would come under Islamic control sometime between the 7th and 9th centuries, and it seems to have been good for the city, at least in an economic sense, as there was much construction, and then it declined, essentially disappearing from the record sometime in the 16th century, only to be resettled in the 1950s as part of Jordan. And that's it for Diban. Next is the Wadi al Hasa or as it's called in numbers, the Wadi Zared, or the Brook of Zared. It's a stream in western Jordan. This rather substantial wadi flows into the Dead Sea, at the town of Al-Safi. Besides numbers, it merited a single mention in Deuteronomy, in both places as a location where the Israelites encamped before they finally went into Moab. The context in the narrative suggests that it was in Edom, placing it south of Moab. Other than that, the location of the actual stream is essentially unknown. The next place is known as beer, spelled just like the adult beverage. This was a stopping point for the Israelites while wandering post-Exodus. It's found in Numbers chapter 21, where the tribes stopped at a well, likely on or near the border of Moab in Amaru. It was here where the Israelites were so overjoyed they burst into song, singing, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the leaders sank, the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter, with the staff. From my perspective, they're vacillating between complete joy and satisfaction with their journey, and wishing they were slaves back in Egypt no doubt drove Moses nuts. Beer also gets a mention in Judges chapter 9 as the place to which Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, fled to escape Abimelech after his 69 brothers had been killed. It's disputed if the Judges' beer is the same place as that in Numbers. If it is, then, at least according to the 17th century English biblical commentator Matthew Poole, it was a remote place, quite distant from Shisham and therefore far from Abimelech, which made it a good hiding place. It could have been the same place as Beeroth, but that city was close to Jerusalem, so not very remote. But those descriptors are a bit relative. If it was the same as Beeroth, it would have been seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. 
This place was an ancient Hivite settlement that also merited mentions in Joshua 18, 2 Samuel 4, Ezra 2, and Nehemiah 7. It may be the same as the Beeroth mentioned in Deuteronomy 10. It's all a bit confusing. The one north of Jerusalem was a stopping point for caravans heading north from Jerusalem, at least during the Roman occupation. This was, of course, over a thousand years after the Exodus. So, a great deal of development and settling would have occurred in that time. It's thought to be the same as a place known as Eusebius Beta, which would make it the modern town of El Birch in Israel. Matthew Poole also suggested that it could have been a different town closer to Bethel. And that's all we know about this town in Numbers, albeit not very much, and more confusing than anything. Manatta is mentioned in Numbers chapter 21 as another stopping point for the Israelites. It was between Beer and Nahuliul, and in the vicinity of Moab. The word translates to our word gift. This has led many to think that it was an oasis or a well, a gift from God. Other than that, not much else is known. The next place is Nahalil, also mentioned in chapter 21. This name translates to either the possession or valley of God. The Israelites encamped there, and it's said to be in or near Moab. The current thinking is that it's a ravine along the course of the Wadi Zarakamon, a short distance from the Dead Sea. And that's all that's really known about it. Now we get to someplace a little better understood, and that's Mount Nebo, which is sometimes rendered as Mount Pisgah. The way the region is currently understood is that the mountain range is the Pisgah Range, while Nebo is a specific peak within the range. Hence the two names. The first mention of Pisgah in the Old Testament is in Numbers chapter 21. Nebo doesn't merit a mention for another 11 chapters. The range, and therefore the mountain, is directly east of the Jordan River and northeast of the Dead Sea. From the biblical narrative, this makes sense as Moses ascended the summit to peer over the Jordan, looking westward into Canaan the land Joshua would lead the Israelites to after Moses' death. Today, on a very clear day, Jerusalem is visible from the peak. On modern maps, you will see the range called Abarim, and it's located in Jordan. Nebo itself has a summit that's just over 2,300 feet, or slightly above 700 meters. Do note that there isn't complete agreement on if the specific peak named in Deuteronomy is the actual Nebo as we know it today. Back in the text, Deuteronomy 34 reads, Then Moses went up to the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. 
Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, at the Lord's command. Moses being able to see all of these places from Nebo makes sense, as it's one of the highest peaks in the Pisgah Range. The text of Deuteronomy records that Moses was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows where his actual burial place is to this day. Christian tradition, and some Islamic traditions though, holds that Moses was buried on the mountain, but does not mention the specific spot on the peak. Other Islamic traditions record that Moses' burial site is at Makam el-Nabi Musa, about 7 miles 11 kilometers south of Jericho, and 12 miles 20 kilometers east of Jerusalem, in the Judean wilderness. Circling back to Pisgah, it was also in this range, and in numbers, that the Moabite king Balak attempted to persuade the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. According to the Deuterocanonical Book of 2 Maccabees, the 6th century BC prophet Jeremiah hid the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in a cave on Nebo to keep them out of the hands of the invading Babylonians. On the summit of Nebo in the 4th century AD, a Byzantine church was constructed. About a hundred years later, it was enlarged and then rebuilt in the late 6th century. At some point, a monastery was also constructed. During this time, specifically in 394, the place merited a mention by the traveler Etheria as part of her pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Modern archaeologists have uncovered six tombs in the hollowed-out rock beneath the mosaic-covered floor of the church. There has been no indication of who was buried there. Finally, this is the location of the brazen serpent sculpture I mentioned in the last episode. You may have heard of Pisgah in a different sense. Southwest of Asheville, North Carolina is the Pisgah National Forest, taking its name from the Pisgah Range in the Old Testament. Interestingly, east of Asheville, so in the opposite direction, is Nebo, also taking its name from the Bible. Unlike the Bible, these two aren't in the same geographic place. And that's it for these two, well, really four places. Another place mentioned in Numbers in chapter 21 is Jahaz, and this place is a bit different from most of the others in the episode. The Israelites didn't encamp there, but instead fought a battle against the Amorite king Sihon. I'll get to this king in the next episode or two. As for the battle, Numbers 21 reads, Then Israel sent messengers to King Sihon of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of any well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. Sihon gathered all of his people together, and he went out against Israel to the wilderness. He came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Israel put him to the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabuk, as far as to the Ammonites, for the boundary of the Ammonites was strong. This battle was then referenced throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. There are also other mentions of Jahaz in the Old Testament, usually as a geographic spot, and usually in this sense in reference to the Amorites. 
When the territory was assigned by Moses, the area around Jahaz went to the tribe of Reuben, and the city itself was given to the Levites. The Meshastili, the same one from earlier in the episode, claims that the king of Israel lived in Jahaz when fighting the Moabite king, once again somewhat aligning the biblical history with the outside record. The Steli goes on to state that Mesha drove the Israelite king from the city, and the Moabites then captured it. This too aligns with the biblical narrative, as later in the Old Testament, in both Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's referred to as a Moabite city. Fortunately, more is known about the next place, Kadesh. Like beer, it may have been a name shared by a couple of different places, or not. The one in Numbers is thought to have been near what ended up on the border of Canaan in the kingdom of Judah. Though this was many years after the Israelites stopped wandering and crossed the Jordan, it was from here that the spies were sent into Canaan. From this passage in Numbers 13, we're told that Kadesh was in the wilderness of Paran, which I'll get to at some point. In the next chapter, Numbers 14, it's from Kadesh that some of the Israelites rebelled and attempted to take part of Canaan. It was also here that Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom, seeking permission for the Israelites to use the king's highway to pass through his territory. In this part, we're told that Kadesh was on the border with Edom. Of course, the king of Edom denied the request. According to the text, the Israelites encamped in the vicinity of Kadesh for a month, at least. This is also where Moses struck a rock, bringing forth water, an incident that ultimately led to God forbidding him from entering the Promised Land. Moses and Aaron's sister, Miriam, died at Kadesh. Shortly after the tribes left Kadesh, Aaron died. Given all of this, at least geographically and historically, in this part of the Old Testament, Kadesh is an important place. And being an important place, it merits plenty of mentions. It would become the southern border of the lands later gained by the tribes. Backing up a bit, it was used as a geographic reference throughout Genesis, including being near where Abraham lived after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The geographic reference continued through the rest of the Old Testament. But where is it? According to Josephus, Kadesh was one and the same as Petra, in the deserts of the modern country of Jordan. More on his view in a minute. According to Deuteronomy 1, to travel to Kadesh from Horeb, going a route adjacent to Mount Seir, was an 11-day walk. Other places in the text would name it as an oasis south of Canaan, west of Arabah, and east of the brook of Egypt, slowly, somewhat, triangulating it somewhat. All of this leading to late 19th century scholars narrowing it down to a potential 18 sites. Maybe I should remove the phrase narrowing it down. Part of the confusion stems from the other places commonly mentioned with it. In some parts of the text, it's noted as being in the wilderness of Zen, in others in the desert of Paran, which essentially leaves two distinct choices. Either the wilderness of Zen and the desert of Paran are both in the same area as each other, or there were two Kadeshes. 
Most modern researchers think it was a singular location. I'll get to them in a second. The minority view is that there were two Kadeshes, one in the west, the one in the wilderness of Zen, and naturally, one in the east, in Peyron. The Peyron location was likely the same as Petra. I'll get to Petra in the next episode. The two locations' opinion was held by Josephus, along with Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius was a 4th century Syrian Greek Christian theologian. I'll be covering him in depth, way in the future. The two of them pushed the Kadesh as Petra theory, even identifying Petra as Miriam's burial place. The single-place proponents link Kadesh with present-day Tel Al-Qudarit. This place is an archaeological site in the Sinai Desert. Being in Sinai, it's in Egypt, near the village of Qusima. All that's left is an earthen mound. What would have made this an attractive place for the Israelites lay about one mile or 1.5 kilometers to the east, an oasis said to be the most fertile one in the northern Sinai. The water that springs from the oasis flows to the west, so towards the Tell. During the Iron Age, so after the Exodus, the Tell was a rectangular fortress Though archaeologists have uncovered multiple layers of fortifications, with the oldest dating to about the 12th century BC. And this dating is important as this is about when the Israelites would have encamped there as part of the post-Exodus wanderings. The artifact dating, though, is disputed, as some researchers claim they are about 200 years more recent. The place was occupied for several centuries, and there appears to have been a second fortification built by the Israelites in the 8th century BC, possibly by Uzziah, who was the king of Judah at the time, and was known for his innovations in weapons and defensive fortifications. The fort was destroyed about a century later, possibly during the reign of Manasseh of Judah. So Kadesh, one place or two, Petra or Tel al we may never know. This does open the door to explore Petra, but I don't have enough time left in this episode, so that I have to wait until next week. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.